Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Oh, my audience, my friends, you are in for a treat today. Ambassador Samantha Power is here. She happens to be the professor of the practice of global leadership and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School and a professor of practice in human rights. She served as the 28th United States Permanent Representative to the United Nations, as well as a member of President Obama's cabinet. I recently read her second book, her memoir, titled The Education of an Idealist, and I was just so curious to learn even more about her childhood. I'm incredibly lucky to call Samantha a friend. We met many years ago working on human rights issues in Africa, and I was so intimidated the day that I met her because, hello, she was the ambassador to the United Nations and happens to be an incredibly brilliant former war correspondent and human rights advocate. And I was so struck by what an amazing normal, warm, and funny woman she is. She is courageous, she's bold, she's brilliant, and she's also so vulnerable, so willing to share, and so willing to lend support to anyone in her community or in wider circles who needs it. And that's why we've stayed friends all these years. Uh, I recently got to read her third book. It's actually a memoir called The Education of an Idealist. And I learned so much about her childhood that I didn't know. Her move from Ireland to the U.S., the sexism and misogyny that she became aware of at an early age, and the moment when she realized she didn't want to be a sportscaster, but instead wanted to work on human rights issues. We're going to get into what she learned working in government and how she shares how not to feel overwhelmed by our big world issues and why she still thinks that the world is an awesome place full of great, great people. So enjoy. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be here. I'm so very excited. Who knew that a that a fateful after White House correspondence dinner gathering would lead to this? Yeah, it feels like a galaxy far, far away when we were at White House after parties, Sophia. I know. When 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 there was progress to be made and we were all happy. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. We have to find happiness um, elsewhere and work to change the things that are making us unhappy. Indeed. Well, and it's obviously your your incredible work and all the things that you've done around the world that I want to I want to talk about today and I think people will be so fascinated to hear about um to get into the writing of your latest book, The Education of an Idealist. But I before I get into you as an ambassador and a journalist and a war correspondent and a human rights advocate, I I always like to go back to the beginning, kind of to where people started and and ask if you were like this. Were were you just a tiny version of this, Samantha, when you were 10? Well, I still, when I was 10, had an Irish accent. So in that sense, singularly not. Um, <laughs> when I was 10, I was already consumed with sports, American sports. I had um, immigrated to America when I was nine from Ireland. And my the first thing many people do at all stages in life during transitions is look around and figure out 
what is the currency? You know, what's going in my new neighborhood or my new job? In that case, it was my new neighborhood, and what was going was baseball. So I devoured sports statistics, baseball statistics. I knew nothing about the game, of course, in Ireland because it's not played there. So I had to learn initially just the basics, but then I went really deep. And at that time, would have had an ambition to be playing professional baseball, to be breaking the gender barrier. <laughs> and I thought I was good enough on the basis of how I competed against my boy neighbors. But um, that was a bit of a stretch, I suppose. And so I was very, very jockey, very sporty, very tomboy, confused for a boy often, and certainly would not have put myself in the, in the upper sphere of the empathetic people I knew. You know, there are people at school who you would think of as extra considerate or extra empathetic. I don't think I was a jerk. I hope I was not a jerk. I didn't like the jerks. I didn't like the bullies. But I wasn't, I wa that wasn't where my orientation was. I wasn't, it wasn't as if I was a future human rights activist just waiting to be born. Mm -hmm. I was focused on sports, sports, and more sports. <laughs> I'm curious sort of what that experience was like, because I imagine moving country at nine, that's a big culture shock and a big shift. So what what was childhood like in Ireland? And I guess, how did it change? Well, I suppose generically, for any child in Ireland, it was uh, very different from America in the sense that your expectations were set pretty young that either you or the people you loved were going to leave. It was the height of the brain drain. Can, can you tell people what that means? Just for people listening who don't, who don't know about the brain drain? Who mercifully don't know about the brain drain. Yeah, it was just the economy was really in a very, very bad place. So for most Irish people at that time, young people, there was an expectation that you would either you or someone you loved or knew well was likely to have to leave the country because if you got educated, there just weren't enough jobs for people who had college degrees and certainly not advanced degrees. It was called the brain drain. And so I just, it, from the moment I feel like I was born, I knew about the brain drain. And mm -hmm. it more, it had some very positive effects in the sense that Irish young people learned languages. I, when I came to America, I knew geography like none of my peers because there was just, you just kind of knew in your DNA, dating back, of course, to the famine in prior generations, but that these waves of emigration were a big part of the Irish tradition, along with the poetry and the music and the rain. So there was that, and everything was smaller. You know, you know, on the TV, there'd be two channels in English only, one in Irish. But my life, in particular, revolved around a pub named Hardigan's Pub in downtown Dublin, where my dad mm. spent, I can't even imagine counting the number of hours he spent, but he, by the time I was sentient, you know, let's say four years old, I was his sidekick at the pub, and so I was there as he was drinking. Initially, kind of amounts of alcohol that were within the mean, because everybody was drinking a fair amount in Ireland in those days, still a big drinking country. But as I got older, he was drinking more and more and more, and his profession, he was a dentist, kind of fell apart. He would pick me up from school, bring me to the pub. I would read my mystery novels in the basement of the pub, he, at the weekends, whole weekends would be spent at the pub. And my mother was very much around and a wonderful presence in my life, but she was in medical school. So she was also, 
you know, sort of occupied in, in a very different way. And so I have many more salient memories of that period with my dad. But also my dad was immensely loving and I was privileged, I felt, that I got to be with him all the time. And he sort of brightened every time I'd come marching up the stairs looking for a Fanta and a replacement for the book I'd just finished. But that was my Irish yeah. life. And, and America, to your question, was just big. Everything was big. There were so many choices. Early on, we went to Three River Stadium. I mentioned that I became a baseball fan very quickly. I think it was the second day in America. My mother and my new stepfather who uh, from Ireland, who, who she'd come here with, I mean, they weren't married, but they kind of ran away together. And he was de facto my, my stepfather all of a sudden. But they brought me to Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh, and we were up way in the nosebleed seats looking down and I saw the grass and I just thought, wait a minute, like I was fed a bill of goods. I thought only Ireland had grass this green. It turns out it was artificial turf, <laughs> but I was so far away, I couldn't, I couldn't tell. So I thought, man, this, all this hype about our Irish grass and this is even greener, it turns out. You have to Ireland make it still got out of artificial materials. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but that was, it, was, it was a big transition, but I, you know, kids, mm. it's amazing what you can adapt to. Yeah. And do you recall, I mean, I don't know if it was in your awareness then, and maybe it was, but now looking back, when you talk about your mom being in medical school at that time, did she talk to you about that experience? Did she face sexism? I, I know that it was so competitive and that in so many levels of higher education in that era, women were told they were taking men's place. Was that an experience that your mom was having? Yeah. She, I mean, the, the Two stories that I remember. One, when she was applying <laughs> for a job as a kidney transplant physician, but basically, you know, as part of her training, so physician to be, I suppose, one of the doctors with whom she was interviewing, one of the senior practitioners, said, I think she, when she, after she'd left the room, but it made her its way back to her, I think she's too tall. <laughs> I think she's too tall. <laughs> Uh, which is extraordinary. And so, yes, women were deterred. I mean, the whole reason she ended up going to medical school late, at, at not as in Ireland you go as your first degree, she was deterred from doing so. People said, girls, you know, you don't have the science background, which was true because girls didn't get the same scientific educations as their male counterparts did. So she didn't really have the background to do what she had always dreamed of doing, which was to care for patients mm -hmm. for, from when she was a little girl. And so she ended up getting a basic degree in science instead of going to medical school, which you do in Ireland at 18, generally, if you're going to go to medical school. She instead did a science degree, then got a PhD in biochemistry. But that longing she had to, to care for patients, it never left her. So she went back to medical mm -hmm. school after getting her PhD. And, and after all of those deterrents, I mean, whether about her height or her looks or, as you say, that this wasn't a woman's job, she heard all of that. But the more striking example that involved me and my younger brother and our emigrating from Ireland to this country was when she went to try to get custody of my brother and me, pointing to the fact that my father was an alcoholic and that the alcoholism was taking over his life and that she was going to go to America to get enhanced kidney transplant training. And that was her rationale for, for leaving Ireland the rationale she didn't really advertise was that there was no divorce in Ireland and she wanted to be with this other person but couldn't really be with him openly mm -hmm. in Dublin, particularly because they were both doctors in the same field and so forth. So, so, but what she did say, and which was true, was that she wanted to go into kidney transplant dialysis and all this. And the judge in the courtroom, and this is how I start 
the book, The Education of an Idealist, because mm-hmm. the, the line is so emblazoned in my psyche. But the judge actually said to her, what right has this woman to be so educated? What right has this woman to be so educated? And it would, you know, because here she was sort of saying, here are my credentials. Here's what I've done. I want to prove to you that this really is about refining my knowledge and taking the next step in my education. And he, you know, turns to the other judges and says about the most dismissive thing imaginable. So I feel as if I was in that courtroom. Like I, I feel I, mm-hmm. I know exactly what the judge looked like. His face is kind of the shape of the map of Ireland. Like he's got rosy red cheeks. He smells like boiled ham and cabbage. And I, I wasn't anywhere near the courtroom. I've just created this picture in my mind and mm-hmm. I've carried it with me my whole life, uh, probably as you know, subliminal motivation along the way. What do you think it's subliminal motivation for? Just, well, I think in part, I, I, I feel like you, you're this way too. I feel always, you know, my, my, my default is tends more toward gratitude and a sense of privilege and, good, and an appreciation of good fortune than it does toward look at all that stands in the way. And that's partly because objectively a lot less has stood in my way than stood in her way for sure. But it's partly, you know, that I knew what she was up against and she just just sort of swatted it away. She didn't, you know, I don't remember her other than telling the story, you know, about the the judge. There wasn't a lot of wallowing. It was all, in, you know, to put it in, in with her thick cork accent, you know, ah, sure, I'll get on with it. You know, I'll get on with it. <laughs> and And so I think probably really until only when I started working actually at the White House and then later at the UN did I start to, you know, see the the utility in a way of gathering with other women and really thinking in terms of we as women and what are we encountering that our male counterparts are not. So in some, so sort of motivation to get on with it, I guess, and also just an awareness that people before us have had to to clear far larger hurdles and but mm-hmm. that there there still is utility in coming together and in understanding what are gender barriers and what are barriers that have to do with other you know kind of exogenous forces well and when i think about that you know you talk about your mother's era a judge would actually say publicly in a courtroom what right has this woman to be so educated and how just insane that feels to us. But we have our own versions of that now. There is still so much pushback for women in academia. There's so much pushback, you know, even as as we're looking at this blossoming of the Me Too movement, you know, two and a half years ago, now it's, well, when are the women going to stop talking about it? And the reason we're talking about it is to try to change it. The reason that we are gathering women, asking for women's perspectives is because it's systems, whether by accident or default, that have been designed by men that create an environment where a man says, what right has this woman to be so educated when he's never said that to a man before? I I doubt a male doctor has ever been criticized because he's tall or short for that matter. So it's to begin creating equity in spaces so that those spaces are welcoming for everyone. And I guess I just think it's so interesting that even across generations, we have like stories to share. Yeah. I mean, I, I've thought about this 
again, a lot in the last 10 years, a lot more than I thought of it when I was just getting on with it. When I, when mm. I got to the White House, I was working for the most feminist president in the history of the United States, Barack Obama. Here he had a wife who had been his boss, a mother who was this trailblazer who went around the world and married first a Kenyan and then an Indonesian and was an amazing anthropologist and trailblazer, really. And then he's the father of two daughters. Yet mm. within the White House, his White House, I was part of his senior staff. There were 26 of us so-called senior directors or special assistants to the president. Only six of us were women. And I had not had that experience of, you know, kind of being in rooms where, I mean, this is now almost to the point of cliche. We know this happens all the time in so many settings, but where you make an argument and, you know, you think you've kind of make, made the case in a compelling, succinct way. And then it kind of, nobody really picks up on it. It lands with a thud at the center of the table. And then like 10 minutes later, some dude makes the same point. People are like, oh, what a brilliant, I just want to pick up on Bob's point, you know? And you're like, wait, uh, what? I, look, um, I just said the uh, same uh, thing. <laughs> I just said exactly the same thing. Better, in fact. And so those dynamics were there. And there was a, a horrible moment. You probably remember this in, I think it was 2011, 2011 or 2012. The president was negotiating with Congress at a terrible time where they were threatening not to allow him to raise the so-called debt ceiling in order to secure mm -hmm. concessions. They were being very, very difficult. It was very high stress. We were looking like we could default and crazy things were about to happen. Super stressful. So the White House released a photograph of the president, just the back of his head, facing his teams, his communications team, his legislative team, and his economic teams. So all the individuals who counseled him day to day, and it was, I think it was a dozen people, all guys, and they released the photo because they wanted to show the president in crack kind of crisis mode. But to your point about unconscious biases and no one in the communications office, probably, maybe even women too. I wouldn't have, you know, I would, I could see myself having put a, out a photo like that and not even, you're just busy and you're thinking about the economic crisis. You put the photo out. Anyway, people went crazy and just said, how is this possible that this amazing feminist progressive, that these are his senior advisors and there's not one woman among them. And then this is the part you might remember, the White House <laughs> made a bad situation much worse. And they're like, no, 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 no. No, 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 you're missing. You're, you're, no, no, this is, this is, this outrage is misplaced. If you look behind Dan Pfeiffer's left thigh or right thigh, I can't remember, you will see Valerie Jarrett's knee. <laughs> that is a knee. That is Valerie Jarrett. And um, Jody Cantor, who of course has done now this brilliant book, she said, but Jody Cantor, I remember, tweeted Valerie Jarrett's leg as metaphor. And, uh, and it really was. And it was, it was that, you know, someone then thought it was a good idea to point to like the portion of a knee that was visible as evidence of the, of the great equality. And so the point is just, again, where the biases exist. It's so subtle. The biases exist in mm -hmm. the minds of, of us as well as men at times. In, in my world of diplomacy and national security, it's really challenging to create the kind of parity that we know we need because it's, as they say, turtles all the way down. You know, as you mentioned, you know, in graduate programs, it already starts the kind of siphoning off more men mm -hmm. than women going into national security, you know, women kind of being in subtle ways kind of nudged to go into softer fields in these realms. If you look on TV, you know, MSNBC and Fox News have almost nothing in common. 
The only thing they have in common that I can find is that I think 80% of their commentators on national security and foreign policy issues are men. <laughs> so they have that in common. Mm. Maybe 78% it is, something like that. And and I've, even with my book, I am, of course, doing a fair number of events and public events, whether it's a, a church or a synagogue or a think tank or a book festival, just the first thing that comes in every time for who is going to be the moderator not not a hundred percent of the time, but I would say eighty or ninety percent of the time so far on my so far three month tour, the recommendation has been a guy. And it's not that they that all of us don't think of women; it's that we don't think of them first. <laughs> and so when you mm-hmm. hit the pause button and you say, "Well, wait a minute, maybe this is an opportunity since I've written." about my life also as a woman and fertility challenges and romance and anxiety and gender dynamics in the workplace. Maybe this would be a good occasion to actually have this conversation with a, with a fellow woman. Then they say, oh, what a good idea. You know, in other words, it's not like a grudge or it's not a desire to perpetuate some of these imbalances, but gravity is just pulling in this, in this other direction. And that's it. It's when we talk about parity over and over again, it's it's to change the gravity of the system, to expand it, really, just so that it includes more people. And it's interesting to me that, you know, when, when we look at your history, you know, working in Obama's cabinet and being at the United Nations, you negotiated the toughest sanctions in a generation against North Korea. You've been called one of our foremost thinkers on foreign policy. Forbes called you a crusader for for U.S. foreign policy as well as human rights and democracy. Foreign policy named you a top 100 global thinker. I mean, you are a woman who carries accolades on accolades. You know, it's accolades all the way down. And, And it's interesting that you know, when you talk about commentators on foreign policy, my my question is, why aren't they asking you to come and talk about foreign policy on the news? Because they should. You are actually the expert. And so it is it is just an interesting place where, regardless of what upper echelons we might find ourselves in, including being one of 26 highest ranking cabinet members to the president of the United States, you still have to fight for your place in the room. Definitely. I mean, I'd say one other thing, you know, I actually, I think someone who has already been U.S. ambassador to the U.N., I I get plenty of invitations. You know, I'm not complaining about, Mm. you know, me. Sure. But I mean, I just, I want to see you on, in those spaces more as a viewer, at least. But I think the the point we're both making in a way is it just, it it can't just be when you get to be U.S. ambassador to the U.N. I mean, that isn't the threshold. That isn't the criteria for similarly situated men, right? The criteria is if you have an opinion, I mean, in some of the, you know, the 24 seven programming, there's plenty of opportunities for these people to be out there and to be, and to be modeling also for young women and men. I mean, remember, but the bias seeps in to everybody from a very, very young age. But one thing that I've noticed in sort of leaving government and then coming back to a campus and teaching and, and being engaging with young people who are, you know, definitely, Generally, my students are, are students who want to change the world. They want to be part of addressing climate change or global inequality or racial injustice or their, for their age group, very much in the thick of the Me Too movement. But I see the way they, since I got some of those accolades, they look at me as if somehow it was all preordained, that it was all, you know, oh, well, that's you. You know, you went off and you wrote this book and 
of course, it won a Pulitzer Prize. And then, of course, Barack Obama read it. And then, of course, you ended up in the cabinet of the president. And one thing that I think is incumbent on me, and I think you do this in, in this show as well, is, you know, I think we have a responsibility to open up not only our CVs and, and you know, the kind of what David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, calls resume virtues, but also eulogy virtues, what he calls eulogy virtues, you know, the kinds of mm. qualities that we think should be brought to leadership. We also have a responsibility, I think, to share our doubts along the way. When I, in, the, in my most recent book, talk about, yes, I, I published this book and it ended up weirdly having this life with you and, and others, but I couldn't find a publisher for the book. I was flat on my back, you know, believing that this book would never see the light of day after five years of research, countless drafts, finally getting to the point where I actually liked my own writing and my own book, which is very rarely the case. And so I'd finally gotten to where I'm like, okay, I think this tells the story of American responses to genocide through these amazing upstanders. This is ready for prime time. And the entire publishing world in New York was like, mm, not so much. <laughs> and, and I write in the book about the Batcave you know, that I, that John Prendergast and I call our heads, you know, where the bats are swarming about and it's the, others may call this imposter syndrome, you know, where, when you're on the verge of asserting yourself, whether in the job market or in an audition or in a, in the situation room, all these little voices come into your head, bats flying around and asking you, you know, is, is, your, is your point creative enough? Does it contradict something someone else has said that you don't want to contradict? Do you have the background that entitles you to make the argument that you're going to make or to put yourself forward for a job or for this or that? And that back cave can be paralyzing. But I think we're finally moving into a phase where someone like me, who happens to have been in the cabinet of the president of the United States, is saying, I have a back cave too. We all have back caves. There's bats all the way down too. I also feel like a failure as a mom as I juggle my job, as a, as a lot of people do. We all feel not only like we should lean in, but that sometimes we feel like we're kind of falling down, right, professionally or personally because mm -hmm. of the struggle we all face trying to integrate, trying to do too much, but trying to do things at a level that uh, I think your generation especially, but even mine, you know, we are striving for equality of results, right? We want to achieve what we've seen others achieve in the past, and we think we're, we're capable of achieving, but we do so with humility, with self-doubt, with anxiety, with buyer's remorse. And I think if we don't share all of that, you know, your life as an actress or hosting this podcast or doing your humanitarian work, my life as a diplomat or as a writer, as a teacher, it, it can look like the life of a Martian, you know, to people who are mm. starting out or who are themselves going through those struggles. So, so, so I think this shift that's happening where we're more open about not having it all sussed is also, mm. there's a vulnerability, there's a strength in that vulnerability. And I think there's an accessibility for people in that vulnerability. I agree. And I don't know if it's Brene Brown's research or her TED Talk going viral or what it is, but I think for people to really understand that vulnerability takes courage. And then for all of us, from whatever vantage point we sit at, to be able to say, hey, from over there, things over here might look really clean and pristine and great, but over here, I'm still confused. I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. I'm, I'm still trying to manage, you know, how do I 
do any sort of physical activity, eat well, and do my laundry, and get my work done, and call my mom back, and like, how how does this work? You know, and I, I think it's relieving when people realize that nobody has it all figured out. Cloning is the only answer. I mean, I guess, or robots or something. I heard Secretary Clinton say at, at one point when I was struggling with all the balance and the juggle, and my son, who was, I think, six at the time, was marching away from me when I was on a UN conference call about Russia. And he literally marches away and says, Putin, 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 Putin. When is it going to be Declan, 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 Declan? My son's name is Declan. And and that was like sort of the the, you know, one of the one of the low points, right, where your son is actually blaming Vladimir Putin for the fact that he can't get your attention when you're when you're on the fall on the phone. But right around that time, I ran into Senator Clinton and she asked how it was going. And I said, oh, I said, I don't know. I just barely hanging on here. And, and again, it wasn't like I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. You know, we were mobilizing an, an anti-Ebola coalition at the UN. I was helping secure the release of political prisoners around the world. We had just negotiated the Syrian chemical weapons resolution to dismantle Syria's chemical weapons program, even if that wasn't enough. It wasn't as if I was felt I was falling down on the job, but it was here that my son is <laughs> invoking Vladimir Putin. And, and so, and Hillary, you know, having raised a child amid doing a whole bunch of other things would, would have known, you know, what I was most lamenting, I suppose. But anyway, she said, you know, it's not lean in, it's lean on. You got to figure out like, what's your network? Who are you going to lean on in this period? Because you don't need any help right now. You're the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. You're America in the world. You have your list of policy priorities, but where, who are you going to lean on to be able to lean in in these ways? And again, I, I don't think a lot of, you know, some men are taking on the parenting and the, you know, house responsibilities and all of that, but, but most are not. My husband certainly, as my daughter likes to say, Daddy, you have other qualities. <laughs> but, but being Mr. Mr. Mom and doing all that was not one of them. And so it was on me to, you know, kind of hold it all together, but it wasn't only on me. And I, you know, that I had the best nanny in the history of the world, uh, an amazing immigrant from Mexico, Maria Castro, who basically co-parented with me for all of those years. My best friends, many of whom were war correspondents with me when I was in my early 20s, who now live in New York, are still my best friends. They would each take a different night of the week and come and collect my kids and have play dates with them. Mm. My mother, who's working as a physician at Mount Sinai, still uh, doing kidney transplant medicine, I would call her. I'd be like, Mom, the Russians have just called an emergency meeting of the Security Council babysitting SOS. And uh, and she would come down from, from Mount Sinai and find somebody to cover for her in the hospital and then cover for me. I mean, you know, you don't, being vulnerable in that way also, and just knowing mm. that there are phases in your life where you just have to ask for help. Asking for help is so big. Especially, I think, when you want to, as you mentioned, operate at a level, do work at a level, achieve at a certain level. We haven't been trained to ask for help. And I think especially as women, we've always been trained to offer help, but we rarely know how to ask for it ourselves. So I, I think listening to you talk about who you leaned on and how is really inspiring to me because it's it doesn't feel accidental. It feels like a good reminder that I have people in my life that I can do that with as well, but I have to ask. Yeah. I think dependence is one of those things that's like, ooh, like who wants to be you don't want to be that needy person, right? We, none of us want to be yeah. that needy, that needy person. And yet 
what is life? You know, how, how, I mean, look at how, how dependent we are on others, even in ways that we're not, we're not conscious of how much of our lives is the product of other people having done things for us. So I do, again, with disclosure about vulnerability, I think a corollary of that in a way is to say, help. (laughs) I love that. As I'm sure most of you probably know and agree with me, traveling during the holidays is insane. It is the craziest time to hit the road, and usually things don't go as planned, which is why I love having a suitcase I can depend on, and it's from Away. Away creates thoughtful products built for the way modern travelers see the world. They started with the perfect suitcase, and now they offer a whole range of essentials. Whether you're rushing through the airport to catch your flight or trying to navigate your suitcase through the crowded aisles on the plane, Away suitcases will not slow you down. Their four 360-degree spinner wheels guarantee the smoothest roll. They have a TSA-approved combination lock to keep your belongings safe. And every suitcase comes with an interior organization system, literal music to my ears, that includes a built-in compression pad to help you pack more and a hidden laundry bag to separate your dirty clothes. Away's newest line of suitcases are made from a durable, water-resistant nylon exterior that is made to last a lifetime. If any part of your suitcase breaks, Away's standout customer service team will arrange to have it fixed or replaced. There's also a 100-day trial on everything Away makes. Take the product out on the road, live with it, travel with it, get lost with it for 100 days. And if you decide it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund during that period. My suitcases are personalized, so lucky for me, I love them. If you want to make your holiday and future travels a lot more seamless, visit awaytravel.com slash WIP to learn more. And if you're in the US, EU, UK, Canada, or Australia, and you order by 11.59 on December 15th, you'll get free ground shipping with guaranteed free delivery by December 20th. Yeah, happy holidays. For additional last-minute holiday shipping details, check out their website, awaytravel.com slash WIP. That's awaytravel.com slash WIP. And if you're in the U.S., EU, Canada, or Australia, order by December 15th for free ground shipping with guaranteed free delivery by December 20th. Okay, guys. We all probably use makeup, lotion, shampoo, and or sunscreen every day, but do any of us really know what's in them? If you listen to our episode with Elise Lunin, you'll know that the government hasn't passed a major federal law regulating the personal care industry since 1938. That is insane to me. That means that companies are allowed to use shady, questionable ingredients and make their own judgments about safety. And many of those judgments are made on cost efficiency, not what's actually good for us as consumers. But Beauty Counter is a company that's making better decisions. They're a clean beauty brand which started in 2013 and created innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner. Over 1,500 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter formulations. They call this the never list. 
Take their recently launched Countertime Collection. It's a safer alternative to retinol. It keeps your skin youthful and hydrated with plant-based ingredients so you get all the age-defying benefits without the concerns like sun sensitivity and skin irritation. I love using their Rejuvenating Night Cream. I love their Eye Rescue Cream. I wake up feeling refreshed and my skin feels clean and I'm not scared about what was on my face while I was sleeping. And I love that they do more than make products. In the last six years, Beauty Counter has advocated on both state and federal levels to push for real beauty laws. Find out for yourself why Beauty Counter is the leader in clean beauty and explore their countertime collection for safer skincare right now. If you're new to Beauty Counter, now's the time to head to beautycounter.com to check out the special holiday offers they've got going before they're gone. That's beautycounter.com, no promo code necessary. Just clean makeup, skincare, and gifts for everyone you love. So I'm curious how how we bridge the gap between 10-year-old you playing baseball and becoming quite a baseball card collector as well. Could you consider yourself a card shark? Card shark. <laughs> card shark. How, how we get from, from 10-year-old redheaded Irish-accented Samantha, uh, who's the card shark, to war correspondent what walk walk me through how does how does all this happen a lot of serendipity i think for sure i guess identify two important moments and you know we superimpose meaning on these moments a little bit in retrospect so i grant that but both of them are very they're very distinct in my mind in a way that feels pretty authentic and i've carried the memories of these moments for a very long time. So the first was the summer after my freshman year in college. I was not political. If you'd asked me if I was a Republican or a Democrat, I would not have known. And I would have been a little bit puzzled by the question. I had gone to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. We, we When we moved to America, we'd moved to Pittsburgh. But then once my mother had to re, she had to redo her residency yet again. So once she finished that, we then moved to Atlanta uh, it was my myself, my younger brother, and my mother and my stepfather from Ireland also. And so we lived in Atlanta, again, very conservative, kind of evangelical community. I was in a high school where African-Americans were bused from the, very, you know, sort of difficult neighborhoods from the inner city out to the suburb where I lived. And my graduating class was the first majority African-American class in the school's history. It's a huge amount of racial tension bigotry. I was progressive in the sense of thinking that that was terrible and and kind of pushing back against it, but I was no, you know, crusading human rights type. I just thought I just called a spade a spade and it, when, you know, when when people were saying racist things, I'd be like that's racist. Stop. That kind of thing, but it was just kind of low grade resistance. But the summer after my freshman year in college, I was working in Atlanta at the CBS sports affiliate and I had an internship. It was, a, again, part of my serendipity. I was so lucky to have an internship at CBS Sports when I wanted, at that time, I'd given up on being a professional baseball player, so I was going to be a sportscaster. And there I was, exactly where you'd want to be, your freshman summer. And I'm taking notes on Atlanta Braves game so I can cut the highlights for the sports segment of the evening news. And on the feed next to where I'm watching the feed of the baseball game is the CBS feed from Beijing. And this is June of 1989, a very long time ago, 30 years ago. And 
what I see is young people my age then, you know, I was 18, getting mowed down by Chinese government military tanks and getting fired Tiananmen on Square. and scrambling on their bicycles and trying to get the wounded away. And it was the Tiananmen massacre, which had really mm. just begun, uh, at, you know, at that day. I mean, it, it, there had been weeks of protests that had been allowed, and there was a real question about whether anybody would crack down or what, what was to be the future of the Chinese state. And this was the answer. It was going to be a crackdown, and it was so brutal. And I, again, to reassure people, I did not think to myself, okay, I'm now going to go from my desired career path of being a sports journalist to changing the world and becoming one day UN ambassador and, mm -hmm. you know, becoming a human rights lawyer. I mean, for me to have thought that about myself at that time would have been like having the conviction that I would one day go to the moon. I mean, it was so far removed from my sense of my own capabilities, my sense of the world and, and whether there was even a place for doing good. I wouldn't have, I just wouldn't have had any familiarity at all. And so all that I resolved in that moment, which is as distinct to me as if it were last week, was that I was going to go back and I was going to try to get better informed about what was happening in the world. Because in seeing, I knew what a massacre was, I was watching it, but I didn't know much at all about the context in which that was happening. And so I went back to campus, I subscribed to the New York Times. I, it was so pathetic. I would, I would, I mean, it was human and pathetic at the same time, but I would I would underline the articles I was reading, circle like the proper names. I would quiz myself. You know, I was just trying to get basic facts. And I, ha I still had the geography, right, from my Irish childhood. So I knew where places were, but anything that had happened within those those sort of geographic boundaries, forget about it. And I just steadily over time became just a little more knowledgeable about current affairs. And then, of course, the more you know... You know, the, it, the more you realize you don't know for starters, but you also realize it's okay not to know and, and you, it's gratifying, you know, as you, as you are then able to remember what had happened in a country before. And so when you read about it again, you think, oh, okay, you know, now I, I remember. And such that by the end of my four years in college, I then applied for another internship to work in Washington. And this was where I had kind of my second crossroads moment, I suppose, which is I ended up working for a man named Mort Abramowitz who had worked in the U.S. government for 35 years as a diplomat. He'd been instrumental in setting up the no-fly zone for the Kurds in northern Iraq in 1991, which saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And he had just retired from the U.S. government, having been an ambassador and assistant secretary. And he was the president of a think tank, the Carnegie Endowment. I was like his coffee pourer, my name is Samantha. As you know, he called me Susan for the entire year I worked for him. I mean, <laughs> he had an awful lot to offer me. I'm not sure how much I had to offer him. I know how little I had to offer him, but but he was consumed with what was happening in Bosnia. And and so like a good girl and wanting to aiming to please, I wanted to know enough to be able to be useful to him to try to do more than pour his coffee. So I began to dig into what was happening there. And then again, like Tiananmen, I mean, once you're confronted with concentration camps in Europe 50 years after the Holocaust or rape camps. It was like the Tiananmen thing of these images out of Europe of emaciated men behind barbed wire. I was, I was kind of hooked. And I just, and I, the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn, 
the more, again, I overcame my, my fear of feeling dumb and looking dumb. And I got more knowledgeable. And I got to the point after a year where I thought, I want to do, I want to do something. I want to be useful. Like Mort was useful in his government career and, and now is useful in drawing attention to this issue. And so, honestly, Sophia, I could have gone in so many different... If, if anybody had offered me a job in the region doing something tangible for refugees or working with the United Nations or low level, any, I would have done anything, but I couldn't Mm -hmm. get a job. I had no skills, so I couldn't get a job doing anything, but I had been a sports reporter. So I went, the Carnegie Endowment where I was an intern was in the same building as U.S. News and World Report, the magazine, Serendipity. And so I went and kind of accosted the chief of correspondence and I asked whether he would allow me to be a freelance correspondent for U.S. News. He asked for my clips. I showed him clips of the Yale women's volleyball team that I've written, and he kind of laughed me out of the out of the room a little bit initially. But he continued to talk to me, and 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 in the end, agreed to take my phone calls, which gave me kind of the confidence—not that I was going to make it, but just to at least try. And I and I think one of the the ideas that I fastened upon them that I think has broader application for young people is what I call the X test. And I, I came back to it at so many different times in my career, and I write about it a lot in The Education of Idealists because it's one of the main things I've learned and rely on. But before any move, to ask oneself not, you know, what is the, the best-case scenario of, of what will happen if I go to the Balkans. I mean, the best-case scenario, you know, I become a star reporter. I'm on the front pages of all the major newspapers. More than that, Bill Clinton reads my article and decides that he's going to end the genocide. So I, that is not the question that I think one should pose is what's the bet, because it's extremely unlikely that anything like that is going to come to pass. What I had started doing then and, and do to this day is I do this X test, which is if all I achieve out of doing whatever I'm thinking about doing is X, will it have been worth it? So it's kind of like a baseline mm-hmm. growth question, right? If, 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 and the way I answered it then was, if, if all that happens in me moving to the former Yugoslavia with you know, just my laptop and a tiny bit of savings to get me through, through the first couple months is that I learned Serbo-Croatian, which I was trying to learn at the time because I was so interested in the conflict, and I see the UN working up close and humanitarian groups and others and I just have a sense of how the real world works, a sense that I, by definition, don't have from a think tank in Washington. If all that happens is that, you know, at that time, how old was I? I was 22 when I was asking myself this question. At 22, that's okay. That's a lot. That, to learn that much, that's a lot. And it's, it's a kind of growth mindset, now that I know the lingo, it's, it's kind of that form of question rather than how many clips am I going to get or how much money am I going to make or am I going to be a conventional success? It's just what will I learn and how will I grow? And when I met Barack Obama for the first time years later, it was very similar. I'm sitting having dinner with him because he'd read my book. It's the first time I'd met him. And I I was thinking I'd really like to go and work for this guy. I was teaching at Harvard Kennedy School by then. and, And I'm like, oh, man, though, I mean, that what is that even going to be like? And I'm giving up so much here. I even had just had acquired season tickets to the Red Sox for the first time, a little, a little package and giving up my red, would be giving up my Red Sox. So if all I get out of going to work for, even if I fall flat on my face, if I have no uh, affinity for politics, cause I've been, you know, I'd never been active in the Senate or in, you know, I'd never worked in government before. 
But, you know, if all I get out of this is that I get to watch Barack Obama in his first year in the Senate learn about domestic issues in a way that as a citizen, you know, I know I need to learn about them. And this was, by then I'm 30, when am I, I'm 34, I guess, when I'm having this conversation with him. If all I do is learn about the Senate and its constitutional responsibilities as it relates to foreign policy, providing a check and balance on the Bush administration, then that's not nothing. That's a huge amount. Like that will inform my thinking, my teaching, my writing. That would be a good year. So, so let me define what I seek to get out of this in a way that that is an achievable goal, and then ask myself, under those circumstances, would it be worth it? I love that, the X test. I got to start applying that to a whole bunch of things. <laughs> oh, I love being at home. I love being at home so much. And for any of you who've been following my home renovation, you know that I finally get to spend a lazy day in my very comfortable bed. Did you know that you spend a third of your life in your sheets, sleeping? So yeah, beds should be cozy. That's why I love Brooklinen. They were the very first D2C bedding company, meaning they work directly with the manufacturers and then directly with consumers so that there's no middleman and no middleman markup, just great products and great service. They've moved beyond the bedroom to offer essentials for your bathroom like towels, shower curtains, bath mats, and they even launched ultra-soft loungewear that makes you feel like you never left bed. Also, all of their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. So lucky for you, Brooklinen is celebrating their days of gifting. Each day, they have promotions on a different surprise item. This holiday season, spoil the ones you love, or you know, treat yourself, with something a little cozier. The only way to get access to Brooklinen's Days of Gifting event and free shipping is to go to brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. And if you're just hearing this and it's after the holiday season, you can still use the promo code SOFIA at brooklinen.com for 10% off and free shipping anytime. Yeah, you're welcome. Brooklinen, it's everything you need to live your most comfortable life. Getting dressed in the morning is a lot easier when you love the clothes in your closet, especially when you have great staple pieces, like a uniform, right? That's why I love Everlane. Also, I am not a fan of price markups. I mean, a shirt for $50 that costs $7 to make? No, thank you. That's rude. With Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. They want you to know what you're paying for and why, so they tell you their real costs. They're radically transparent about every single step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories that they work with. The clothes are chic, they cost less, and they last longer. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. That is something I like to hear. They make the best essentials, they have 100% grade A cashmere, quality cotton basics, sustainable silks, premium Japanese denim made at the world's cleanest denim factory, Italian-made leather shoes, and outerwear made of recycled water bottles. Hello? I am obsessed. This is so cool. In 2018, they made a commitment to eliminate all virgin plastic from their supply chain by 2021. We need more companies like this in the world. Some of my favorite things from Everlane are their grade A cashmere sweaters, their quality cotton basic tees, and they even make some pretty rad jumpsuits. 
So right now, if you're curious, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash WIP. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash WIP to check out a collection that I curated myself. everlane.com slash WIP. When you talk about, you know, being 34 and sitting down with Barack Obama to begin examining the Senate, when you mentioned that you were teaching, you'd, you'd been at Yale, you switched from sports to wanting to be a war correspondent, and, and then you, you moved to Bosnia. When did you, what were you doing there? What were you seeing firsthand? Because you were saying that you were seeing footage, you know, of, of these concentration camps in former Yugoslavia, that you were, you were looking at what was happening to the people there. But what happens when you actually get there? And, and what do you do? Yeah, I, I did skip over a fair amount there, Sophia. Um, yeah, I suppose <laughs> I did. I, so I went and this was probably, although I didn't, embrace the phrase at the time, this was my first experience of lean on in my professional life because I got there and uh, a young woman, Stringer, we were all called Stringers, which means there was a piece of string attaching us to some publication, but they paid us per word, per story. Um, but it meant we had a home in effect to to um, to submit our articles to and, and to hope that editors uh, would find those articles worth publishing. But this woman I met there, Laura Pitter, was Time Magazine's stringer. She also worked for Reuters. And again, a number of young people were there just drawn by the injustice, the ethnic cleansing, what was being done to women, particularly in regard with regard to sexual violence. And Laura was one of those people drawn on principle to figuring out how to become a journalist on the fly in order to cover this war, in order that the atrocities that were unfolding would be stopped by someone with, you know, and none of us would have been able to articulate exactly how they'd be stopped or, uh, but there was just an idea of if you tell the story about a genocide being perpetrated in the heart of Europe and you tell it compellingly over time, that has to matter. And, and maybe that was naive, but it was very much what motivated many of us. So Laura took me under her wing and she had access to an armored car, uh, which I certainly did not. She, told me that I needed $1 bills and $5 bills in order to go into Bosnia in order to get through checkpoints or to buy cigarettes for people. She, I never forget, sitting uh, with her in her apartment. She was on her laptop doing a story. She was teaching me what, you know, how to write a lead and how to write a nut graph and how to bring readers far away into what you what you were writing about. And I'll come to what we were seeing. But, but then I... We had just been at a press conference where we came to understand that a nascent peace had been agreed to between the Muslims and the Croats. And I had in my in my notebook from when I was in Washington just a month before, before I'd moved, the number for the NPR foreign editor. So I thought, well, this is a good opportunity. I'll just call them. And and so I'm sitting next to Laura. I go and I use her her phone, which is part of a fax machine then. And I called the the desk at National Public Radio and I said, hi, this is Samantha Power. <laughs> I, uh, I just wanted you to know that this peace agreement, uh, ceasefire has been forged between the Muslims and Croats. I'm, I'm wondering if you'd be interested in something, I said, sounding very practiced. And they just kind of grunted back the response. They're like, yeah, you know, if you could, if you could file a spot 
we'll call you back within the hour, you know, no more than 90 seconds, I think it was, and just keep it tight or something like that. And, and I, so I was like, absolutely, you know, I look for your call. I hang up. I say to Laura, what's a spot? <laughs> what's a spot? I know what a spot is, a spot on one's clothing or out, out damn spot. But what's, what's a, what's a radio spot? What is a spot? So Laura kind of coached me through how to, and so that was on the on the craft side. Is you, just, I just learned from the people around me, honestly, because I was mm-hmm. totally making it up as I went along. The other part came very naturally to me, which was to go out and to talk to people and to ask what had happened to them. So if a marketplace had been attacked by a Bosnian Serb shell, as happened, for example, in the summer of 1995, multiple times while I was living in Sarajevo uh, with people under siege. If that happened, and you knew it happened, you'd go to the scene of the crime. There's a bit of ambulance chasing involved in being a war correspondent, unfortunately. You would go, you would take in the scene, and then you would actually go and engage the parents of children who had just been killed on a playground within hours of the loss of those children. And what was crazy was they were so generous and they were still so believing that if they shared what had happened, not only what had happened to their child, but if they shared what that child had been like before they had been killed, if they built out, helped you build out a picture of their character, of their habits, of their play, that it would make a difference, that someone else's child would be saved because they told that story to you. And so... Initially, I, I found that, I mean, just I was so moved by the, large, the largeness, both by what was happening. Of course, it was devastating. I mean, it was un- mm-hmm. just indescribably heartbreaking. But then to think of this kind of generosity of spirit and the, and the largeness of these families. And, and so whether that was me talking to somebody who'd lost their children, uh, you know, who were grown and, and conscripted into serving in any one of the armies in the region or the militia, and their, their sons had been killed in battle, or someone who had lost their sons in the Srebrenica massacre, where 8,000 Muslim men and boys were just lined up and shot in the summer of 1995, or this playground massacre I mentioned, it would just, it, you know, initially I really believed, as did other reporters, that if we just told those stories that it would move the needle. By the mm-hmm. end of my time there, I began to despair that it wouldn't work. And I began to believe, I began to feel voyeuristic almost, that I was going in and, and almost re-traumatizing the people that I was talking to by asking them to tell these stories and that nothing was changing in Washington. It was at that point, after two plus years, that I decided that instead of just reporting on what was happening I would leave and I would go to law school. And in law school, I thought conceivably I would acquire the ability to have a tool that went beyond my pen that would allow me potentially to work at an institution like The Hague, where they Mm -hmm. were pursuing people who had perpetrated these crimes, these market Mm -hmm. massacres or the massacre in Srebrenica. So I, I I ended up leaving journalism kind of in a very... And after a lot of agonizing, but but ultimately in quite a firm way of just this isn't enough. I don't. I'm not feeling that words are mattering and stories are mattering in the way that I had hoped they would. And then, ironically, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, interestingly, I suppose I left 
Another mar- large market massacre occurred in downtown Sarajevo, very near where I had been living, a few days after I left. By that time, I was driving from New York, where my parents were living, to Harvard Law School, where I was going, another break to get into Harvard Law School, using my clips, my war correspondent clips. That was I was an unconventional candidate to get into Harvard Law School, luckily, because I couldn't have gotten in the old-fashioned way, that's for sure. But I got in and was driving there, and as I was driving, I heard on the radio word that President Clinton had actually finally decided to intervene to prevent Serbs from shelling Sarajevo, to prevent again, the the perpetuation of these camps and ultimately to ensure that people would be able to return to their homes. It was a, a, a very quick campaign, but NATO, led by the United States, was able to bring the war to an end within two weeks. So there I am at law mm-hmm. school asking myself, what the heck am I doing in law school when, when all of this is happening and when, when words do matter and where it may take time, but it was really the pressure on President Clinton from... NGOs and from members of Congress and from really through the journalism that that particularly mm-hmm. others were producing that finally tipped the balance and ultimately brought about a reprieve for these these people who who deserve far better than they had been getting. Of course. And that's really the truth of the matter. Everywhere in the world, every time there's a conflict, there's a group of people who deserve so much better than the way the world responds to their crisis. And I'm curious because you you looked at that crisis from the lens of a journalist and you knew what, what you wanted to push along for then-President Clinton. But then being in the Obama White House, you were on the inside as an ambassador of the Syrian crisis. And something that I thought was so incredibly simple and powerful, um, I actually got to interview President and Secretary Clinton last year. And when we were talking, they they each echoed to me that very often when you're in positions of leadership, be it the president of the United States or secretary of state, your two choices are a bad choice and a worse choice. That there's often not this rainbow option that we all are hoping for. And when we think about Syria, you know, you mentioned that you guys during Obama's tenure were able to negotiate a stoppage to their chemical weapons program, which is obviously an incredible win for the people suffering there. We have since, obviously entering into the Trump administration, completely abandoned all of our allies and made that situation far worse, which is devastating because you know firsthand what it's like for people on the ground. But what is it like to sit inside of the cabinet of the president, having criticized another president's response to a human rights crisis, and see with all the sort of inside baseball information you have access to in those rooms in the White House, how hard it really is to take action on a global stage like that? Well, I guess I'd say I have two two associations with, with that question. I mean, the first is absolutely to to take note. I think I think President Clinton or or Secretary Clinton's point is exactly right. I mean, <laughs> President Obama used to sometimes he would start a meeting and he'd say, "Okay, who's going to serve up the turd sandwich?" <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a graphic, gross uh, image, but it spoke to kind of, "Oh, here we go again." Like, let me guess, poison number one or poison number two. You know, choose your poison among crummy options. But I had I, I called my book "The Education of an Idealist," not because I started with some rose-colored, 
understanding of how the world works, right? My formative experience, as we've been discussing, was in a, in a war zone where people were perpetrating genocide, where the world was largely looking away for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go in expecting it to be easy to integrate a higher level concern for human consequences into decision-making. That was my goal. My goal was for human rights to be more than the skunk at the lawn party, but for people to integrate concern for human rights in every one of their decisions, recognizing at at their core and at our core as a country that we are better off when we do so. You know, there would not have been an Arab Spring and all of the violent upheaval that have caused so many cascading consequences, including hundreds of thousands of people migrating into Europe and potentially changing the politics in Europe, maybe playing a role in Brexit, maybe even playing a role in the election of Trump, had those leaders actually taken seriously requests for urgings for political reform? Had they not yes. ignored the the pent-up demands of their citizens for democratic accountability and for an end of corruption and humiliation? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not human rights are not antithetical to the U.S. national interest. Human rights are the way over time for people to enjoy far more stability and, and dignity of a kind that is calming. Dignity and rights fulfillment, you know, are calming, as we know in this country as well, as people feel yes, there. I mean, if human rights were the foundation on which every governmental house was built, the world would be stable. <laughs> And the environment would be stable. We would operate so differently. And it's strange that the actual quality of human life on Earth is not at the center of every discussion we have politically. Yeah, I mean, and that in President Obama, we finally had someone who I think understood even structurally that if you believe what you and I were just talking about, as he does, and as I think President Clinton and Hillary Clinton do, there's still going to be, we were talking earlier about gravity, there's still going to be a ton of gravity pulling us in the, in the old direction, in the direction of just going along to get along and not wanting to rock the boat and providing this steady stream of military assistance even to a government like Egypt's that's doing terrible things to its people. That, that just there are a lot of relationships that have been formed over time. And, you know, I and you and we're not for rupturing those relationships, but we're for integrating into those relationships much more sustained attention to how that military assistance, for example, is affecting human beings in those countries, whether we're getting our money's worth, as Donald Trump would say, for for the assistance we are providing in terms of our interests broadly defined. And because President Obama, I think, shares that view of the integration of values and interests and human rights and security, he understood that having a voice inside the room making that argument was very important. And that's particularly in the second term when I got to be UN ambassador and was in the cabinet and was no longer a backbencher or someone fighting to get into meetings meant that I could bring the perspective of human consequences into the room. I had to acquire it. I mean, in some cases that required leaving New York and and going out and meeting with Syrian refugees or Syrian chemical weapons survivors or going to South Sudan to to see what was happening there with the recruitment of child soldiers or potentially a, a mass atrocities that were happening in different parts of the country and and all kinds of places like that. And then to bring those testimonies, but above all, also ideas about what to do about crises like that back mm-hmm. into the room and to just make sure, because, because the truth is, 
that, that it's almost inevitable that the welfare of people who aren't in the room isn't as salient as the welfare of those of us who have families and, and networks in the United States of America. We're there to keep the American people safe. And so the tendency to privilege the urgent over the important is so real. And the tendency to fall back on old habits has an awful lot of momentum behind it. And so I credit, you know, President Obama for, again, wanting that voice, for welcoming those views. I would also say, and this is one reason that I chose to do something I never thought I would do, which is write a memoir, that notwithstanding how complex it is, there's so much you can do. And and so there is a bit of a, a kind of fatalism, like, isn't it all so hard? And it's not only turd sandwiches. It's not only choices between lesser evils. When I write about issues that, that you've worked on as well, on efforts to support invisible children and others, um, uh, you know, young people particularly, evangelicals and others who had brought this issue to the fore and really put it on the Washington radar for the first time, we in the executive branch had the chance to resource the desire to effectively decimate the Lord's Resistance Army and to end the conscription of girls into sexual slavery. And we could do so in just by doing very small things, by sending a hundred military advisors into Central Africa to support local African armies, to incentivize yeah. that, to provide them with intelligence, to, to spend money supporting efforts to give defectors from the Lord's Resistance Army a pathway uh, back into society. We, you know, when it came to other parts of Africa, like the Ivory Coast, where the incumbent president tried to, tried to steal an election, just by having President Obama engage early rather than doing what we traditionally do, which is to wait to bring the president in until all the other people in the hierarchy have kind of done their thing. But by bringing him in early and getting UN peacekeepers to be much more assertive that they, than they generally are, we completely, mm. again, working with the rest of the world, helped diffuse what could have been a major atrocity situation, Ebola. We, we had charts from the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, the Center for Disease Control, telling us that 1.4 million people were going to be infected with Ebola by January 2015. We were given those charts in September 2014. President Obama, in those meetings, again, where the options aren't great, but decided that he was going to send 3,000 U.S. troops and health workers into West Africa, knowing that our interests and our values were completely intertwined, knowing that if we didn't end the Ebola epidemic or, or support those who were ending it on the ground, the locals who were fighting the Ebola epidemic, that it would come to the United States and that it wouldn't stay contained. And so sending those troops and those health workers, I was then UN ambassador, he taps me, he's like, okay, go tell me, what's this coalition going to look like? How are we going to leverage what we're doing? We're not the world's policemen. We may be the captain and the catalyst, but tell me, Samantha, how, how you know, what other countries are going to be brought into the fold. And so we got Cubans were sending their doctors from sub-Saharan Africa up to Liberia, Guinea, Sierra Leone. The Chinese built Ebola treatment units just as we did. The British took a leadership role in Sierra Leone while we took Liberia. The Malaysians provided tens of thousands of rubber gloves for the health worker. I mean, it was, everybody was chipping in in their own way, which is, and that is what being in public service gives you opportunities to be a part of doing great good for all of the challenges. And so my education, such as it is, is much less about, oh, life is nasty, brutish, and short, and let's all give up, it's too hard, but much more, okay, 
where can you reasonably make a difference? You know, how, how can you bring humility to the enterprise? Because there's so much you also don't know. And because above all, we have to deal with our democracy at home and the needs of, of Americans. But how do you learn also from mistakes have been made in the past in order to prosecute your ideals more effectively, in order to build coalitions so you, your country is doing less, but more is being done as a whole. And that, by, by serving and by trying at least to keep learning while serving, I think that's my education, is much more on tactics than on whether we want to accept the world as it is. I mean, who wants to accept the world as it is? This is not the world no. we, would, we would build if we were starting from scratch. So we do have to, I think, instill more faith, more awareness of success stories. You know, the, the invasion of Iraq stands out as sort of the defining event in American foreign policy in the 21st century. That's not all American foreign policy has been up to. American foreign policy is not only about abandoning the Kurds in northern Syria or ripping up the Iran nuclear deal or the Paris Agreement. It's about negotiating the Iran nuclear deal so we don't have war with Iran, about negotiating the Paris Agreement so we finally begin to act with urgency on the, on the existential threat to our planet. And so, I, you know, I, I think for people to see that they, they have a role in all of this, to not feel small next to these very large problems, we have to open up, again, the good that can be done and the fact that even as you do put points on the board, to use a sports metaphor, the doubt never leaves you. The feeling of being small never leaves you. Of course you're small. It's climate change. It's huge. It's the biggest thing we've ever thought about. We can't even wrap our minds around the devastation that could be upon us. But if we succumb to, to, if we only feel small, instead of knowing that each person has the power to do something small that in turn, you know, can create larger movements and cascades of progress over time, you know, then we're, then we really will, we'll get a, even if we don't like the world as it is, it can, it can definitely get worse. President Obama used to say to me, and we had one argument about something where I was pushing a maximalist position, and he said at some point, you know what, Sam, better is good. And better is often a hell of a lot harder than worse. <laughs> He's like, I'll take better every time. And so, you know, we can, we can do a lot. This is like the X test, right? If all we do is make things better, even a little bit better, that's lives that are improved. Um, that's yeah. people who feel seen. That's major. I love that. It makes me think of something that you said in your book. You wrote, I had come to understand that the UN was not a single entity choosing to act or not act. It was a building where countries gathered. When confronting a crisis, individuals who helped lead those countries had to decide what they were prepared to do. If enough individuals could summon the will to chip in and work together, we could save millions of lives. And it it feels like a, a global version of your lean on idea that that if we really participate, if we really, as you said, remember that supporting the world supports us at home, if we if we stay in that sort of symbiotic experience as a planet together and as countries together, we we can all chip in a little bit and make enormous change. I wonder, was was that something that, you know, obviously the global idea is the macro, more in the micro, was was that what 
your Wednesday evening get-togethers felt like when you were in the White House? Because I, I loved reading in the book about how you had this amazing female support system. As you mentioned, the the National Security Council, which you were on in the in the first um, four years of the administration, was 26 senior directors and six six of whom were women. So how, how did the group come about and, and how do you think it impacted your life, you know, juggling being at the White House and being a mom and, and then your, your working life in the White House itself? Well, first to stipulate it, the group, the so-called Wednesday group was not my idea and I would not at that time in my life and in my stages of self-awareness, I would not have had the foresight to create such a group. But my colleague, Liz Sherwood Randall, who was the president's advisor for European issues, was the one who said, we are meeting, ladies. <laughs> you will be in my office Wednesday, I think it was 6 p.m. There will be wine and cheese, and it shall be brief. <laughs> and so we met, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? And But again, back to the Batcave and the kinds of questions we each have in our minds about whether we're optimizing, whether we're doing the best we can be doing, and, and for lack of a better expression, whether it's us or them, you know, to use relationship speak, you know, is it, is it me or is it them? By, this, by my friend Liz bringing us women together, we realize, you know, occasionally it's me. But more often than not, it's them. It's the structures. <laughs> it's, it's, and I don't mean like some bogey of, uh, th that's out there, but that there are structural habits and gr group dynamics and group behaviors that can be really demoralizing. And I did not know whether my experience of those demoralizing features of life at the highest levels of government were specific to me because I was working on human rights, which is a tough portfolio, whether they were specific to me because I was pregnant when I got to the White House and began to wonder, like, are people not engage me in the way that I hope they would because they know I'm about to leave to go on maternity leave. And then, so they're like, ah, what's the point in investing in this conversation? She's going to be gone. Was it because I was a newbie and novice to government? I'd been an outsider. Did they think I was like a journalistic spy? <laughs> you know, I had all these, then I sit down with the women. I'm like, well, you know, occasionally it might be one of those other arguments, but actually there's some real issues in terms of gender. And, and we can, by banding together, we, we're not going to change the world, but we can, we can sh I have this other expression in the book, we can shrink the change. We can take the big issue of wanting to strive for and be part of equality and, and, and to feel equal in every respect. We can skinny that down to something much more modest, which is we can compare notes. We can reinforce what one another says in meetings, not to necessarily in a knee-jerk way agree with what your female colleague says. Some of my fiercest disagreements were in fact with Liz who convened the Wednesday group uh, on a couple issues. <laughs> and, um, and we're still sparring even years after government about, about what was the right thing to do about a couple things. But so it doesn't, just because you're a female doesn't mean you have the same perspective on what you should do on a given issue, but sure. you, can, you can make a decision and be intentional about taking seriously your colleague's argument and by engaging it. And that's really, I think, more than anything what came out of the Wednesday group. That and just friends, you know, just to have friends. I, I, after we had our first child, I began trying to have a second child and had a number of miscarriages, which I write about in the book. And then I started IVF. And unfortunately, my the, the sort of IVF cycles pretty much all occurred. And I, I went through, I think, five cycles 
the fifth of which mercifully culminated in the birth of our wonderful daughter. But as I, as I went through those cycles, it's a hard time because you don't know, is it ever going to work? And, and you assume at a certain point that it probably isn't. And it's immensely disappointing. And the Wednesday group became also just a, a refuge, you know, to sort of talk about what had just happened and, and the struggles. But it was also the, the case that these IVF cycles occurred at the height of the Arab Spring, like the year where I was going through this in the most sustained way was as the Arab world was blowing up. And so I would occasionally have the experience of having to slip out of a, a really important meeting to go do an egg retrieval or an egg implant or an, an egg retrieval or an embryo implantation. And I, you know, I would, I would, you're always conscious of, of leaving a meeting and are people noticing that you're leaving a meeting? And, you know, I wouldn't, it wasn't like I was missing so much. We had many meetings, but still, it's, again, those, those trade-offs and that difficulty one has feeling like you're doing everything optimally. And I would skulk out of these meetings, and then I would spot a member of the Wednesday group across the room in the situation room, and one of them would just give me a great thumbs up and, uh, or like the okay sign or a kind of go get them girl. You could, just, you could just feel this kind of burst of support across the room, and, um, and it, made, it just made a huge difference. Just, again... In, in softening the toll uh, of, of some of these other dynamics. And I think ultimately really changing the vibe in, in the White House as a whole. And I should say very much thanks also to the personal interventions by President Obama and by the National Security Council Chief of Staff, Dennis McDonough, who began to realize that these gender dynamics were needed to change and change the hiring approach altogether to slow it down because it turns out that actually if you put out a call and say, come work at the White House in these crazy seven-day-a-week jobs, 16-hour days, you know, women, especially if they have children, depending really at almost any stage in their career, fewer women were applying for those jobs than their male counterparts who could rely, again, if they were parents on, on their spouses to, to be doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting in, the, in these concentrated periods where, where their spouses were serving in, in these jobs. And so it turns out in order to get women, in order to create the kind of equality you seek, you, you, it can't just be a, a kind of call, you know, a, a, hey, the job's open, apply. You actually have to go out and actively recruit and actively engage women. Uh-huh. I learned this myself because I was hiring more men than women. And I realized you have to just slow down the hiring process and actively sit down with people and say, here's how we're going to address you know, these work-life challenges that you, that, that, and burdens, really, that that is the deterrent for you wanting to be in this job. I want you in this job. How can we make this work, consistent with also needing to keep the country safe? Um, so they're difficult conversations. Uh, but, but without that intentionality, it's, it's just not going to happen on its own. And the other thing I'd say, Sophia, just on the, on the idea of shrinking the change, I think the you know the spirit of of what i learned in government really does extend well beyond foreign policy or diplomacy or human rights promotion around the world i think it's i think this idea of shrink the change is has real relevance for us as as citizens you know because what what is the thing that keeps us from voting and remember far fewer women voted in 2016 than voted in 2012. I mean, how can that be, really? With the stakes of that election, what they were far fewer younger people voted in 2016 to 2012. Well, 
because we think with our vote that we can't change the world. Well, we can't change the world with a single vote. That's true. That's officially, it's technically true. But look at what the collective failure to vote in the same numbers we had done has yielded. Yes. And that's why every vote counts. Every vote counts. Every but, but single one. But it's also, this, you know, whether we're talking about voting or we're talking about anything, okay. I happen to care passionately about the fact that Trump has virtually shut down our refugee program in this country. And But I, I can't fix that technically while Donald Trump is president. He's the commander in chief. He's setting our refugee targets. He put the Muslim ban in place. The Supreme Court decided to uphold that that. Muslim ban in a case that will go down with the Korematsu case legitimating the internment of Japanese Americans is one of the most outrageous un-American Supreme Court decisions in history. I'm not on the Supreme Court. I'm not about to be on the Supreme Court. But there are refugees living in my community right here in Massachusetts who have arrived in a trickle, but in the least hospitable climate for refugees in my lifetime. And I can do. I can drive those people to job interviews. I can bring them linens when they arrive because they they come with nothing. And by the way, I, I, in terms of what I do, in you know, outside of being a, a teacher and a writer, and a and a sort of outraged tweeter, <laughs> I, the, the organizations I work with now are organizations that are dedicated to, in the case of the International Refugee Assistance Program. They're, it's just a group of lawyers who are dedicated to trying to reunite families that have been separated by the Muslim ban and by mm-hmm. Trump's other uh, horrific and cruel uh, administrative orders. So basically we're using the court system that we have to reunite spouses who got separated or children from their parents. And I work with something called the Tent Foundation that's all about getting companies to provide refugees with opportunities for employment because it turns out, guess what? If you're a refugee and you've made it to the United States or you've made it to Europe, do you know what that person has gone through? First of all, they don't want to be in Europe or the United States. They want to be home. I've never met a refugee who doesn't want to be home, who doesn't wish that that's where they were still living. But the resilience and the drive and the innovation of these people, what they have been through to put themselves in a position to be applying for a job and, you know, all across America, you're seeing communities. I, I grew up in Georgia. 10 minutes, 15 minutes from where I grew up is a community called Clarkston, which I never in a million years back when I was in high school in the late 80s there would have guessed is now referred to as the Ellis Island of the South. 40 languages spoken in this wow. little town of Clarkston. And it, this is where refugees have settled. It's where immigrants go to settle. And nobody is more upset about Trump and his policies than this community, which these refugees and these immigrants have been the economic lifeblood. They have brought new shops and cafes and drive into this community. And it's a beautiful thing. It's America just, it's not different from America really at the macro, but one has the chance to engage with people who are coming still or who have been here and who feel this cold burst of wind uh, from the highest levels. And, and that's not saving the world, but that, and, and that's not changing the whole world, but it's changing individual worlds. And I, I think at our peril, we make the best the enemy of the good. And that goes beyond diplomacy and what we do at the UN or any place like that. That's, that's for each of us day to day. I love that. At our peril, we make the best the enemy of the good. It needs to be on a bumper sticker. I want to tattoo it on my face. It's like, that's it. 
That's such an excellent reminder. I, I have a question for you that I like to ask everyone. The podcast is called Work in Progress, and I'm curious when you hear that phrase, what comes to mind firstly as a work in progress in your life? So I have instituted a practice with my friend John Prendergast where every day before we go to bed, we email each other the three things for which we are grateful. And I think for me, particularly in an era of Trump with the kind of debasement of our institutions and I think the corruption of the rule of law and the cruelty of so many policies, it's dark out there. And I, my family is blessed not to be vulnerable to the whims of this president in the way that so many families are in terms of their health care premiums or in terms of deportations or DACA kids. I mean, you know, the amount of fear and pain that is out there in this country. But but I care about those people. And, and it can you can go through the day and just today, you know, we hear about food stamps being stripped from 700,000 people before the holiday. I mean, it, you know, I just, I'm in tears a lot of the time just on the basis of what is being done to people. I may not know these, these people personally, but I can imagine what that would be like to be a parent and get word that you don't, you're not going to be able to get food stamps. I mean, what does that even mean? And so all of that said, amid, against that backdrop, there's, there's plenty of good news as well in terms of activation and so forth. But sometimes you can get a little bit swallowed by that darkness <laughs> and disempowered by it. And what this thing that John and I have done in making ourselves stop at the end of the day and just look back at the day and say, okay, these three things today happened and I am grateful for them. It could be, mm -hmm. it could be something my son or daughter said, you know, that's just one of those priceless moments. I, I was, <laughs> I took my daughter uh, to Australia last week on book tour and, you know, we were at the, at the desk where we're checking in and the, the man wanting to make sure that I'm not sort of stealing someone's child says, engages my daughter and says, do you two live at the same address? And my daughter who's seven just looks up and said, no, I live in Concord, Massachusetts. My mother lives in book tourville, <laughs> which is like, but, but, <laughs> but like as an example, that made the gratitudes. Cause like who can't be grateful for the wit, the cutting wit, devastating wit, and and the and the expression of need and vulnerability from a seven year old. It was just it was too perfect. So you could be grateful for that, or you could be grateful, you know, for for someone you read about who's doing humanitarian work in the world that you didn't know about, or you could be grateful for the election in the elections in Kentucky and Louisiana, where where states that Donald Trump won by twenty and thirty points. Those governorships have now gone blue because people organized and they voted in numbers they hadn't voted in in decades. Whatever yes. you want to be grateful for, it changes the way I go through the day. If I'm mm. looking for things to be grateful for, it changes what I'm seeing. It, 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 it can change everything, but it's a work in progress <laughs> because, of course, when you go to bed, it's late, you know, you're tired, it's been a long day, you got other, you know, it's like, oh, my gratitudes. I have to do my gratitudes, you know, and, um, and sometimes I get behind. And so I have to do several days worth of gratitudes. And, but yeah. if, if I can institutionalize this, I think it's like, I mean, I guess at its essence, it's glass half full versus glass half empty, but there's a color in the day when you're, when you're looking for things to be grateful for.
Oh, it's just the most fun to talk to you. And I want to talk to you for the rest of the day, but you have work to do. It's great to talk to you. And you're great. Thank you for making time for me amid your everything you have going on. You're a juggler, sister. You got a lot happening. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud10 and Brilliant Anatomy. Powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.